Hello and welcome to the final episode of Season 3 of Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on Hanif Abdurraqib. Hanif is a poet, essayist, and cultural critic, and also writer and performer for Season 3 of KCRW's podcast Lost Notes, which is focused on musical stories from the year 1980. Please, please, please check it out. Hanif is the author of multiple poetry and essay collections, as well as the 2019 nonfiction book, Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes on a Tribe Called Quest. I've spent a lot of time with Hanif's work throughout the pandemic, and I hope after hearing our talk, you will as well. In the meantime, please have a safe and healthy end to 2020, and I look forward to coming back to you with more Spotlight On early next year. How are you today? I'm okay. Uh, it's, you know, the, the, the weather's uh, shifting pretty dramatically here, and I, I, as prepared as I thought I was for it, I'm never as prepared for it as I think I am. So, you know. Where is here for you? I'm in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, oh, okay. uh, born and raised here, and, and now I hope to, hope to be here for forever, if I can swing it. You know, it's, uh, I don't know, um, I was racking my brains before we spoke to think of if I, if I knew any other people from Columbus, and um, I don't know if I do. So in so much as I'm looking forward to talking about your work, I want to learn a little bit about you and your background. Um, tell me about Columbus, and tell me about the time you grew up there, and how and if Columbus has changed over the course of your growing up there, leaving and coming back. Oh yeah, I mean, I think like many cities in America, it's it's kind of um, at the mercy of you know corporate gentrification, and um, you know at the mercy of the kind of uh, upheavals that happen when um, you know when a city finds itself unsatisfied with its standing in the world and in imagines itself something different than it actually is often at the expense of its people. Um, so that's a, that's a broad answer, but, um, you know, Columbus, um, I, I still love it a great deal. I grew up on the East side of the city where I live now. Um, right. Like shortly after I moved home, well, I guess not shortly, a couple of years after I moved home, I bought a house in the East side and I was only gone for maybe two and a half years. I lived in Connecticut. Um, and did not particularly love living in Connecticut, but you know, it's, that was a, that was a brief season of my life. Um, but I, I do think that coming back was um, interesting because in the two years I was gone, so I was gone from about uh, 2014 to 2017, early 2017. Um, the city had gone under, undergone so many changes just politically, the organizing and activism uh, groupings and scenes that I had become accustomed to kind of um, become splintered and become more robust in some ways. Um, you know, some of the places I, I loved were not the same anymore. Uh, and I say this as someone who, when I lived in Connecticut, would come back to Columbus semi-regularly because, you know, as I stated, I did not love Connecticut. Um, but I, I, I do think that um, there are still pockets of the city that feel very much home in the way they did when I was young. Um, and there's still pockets of the city that 
I think, reflect the people working and living and loving in the city, which is, um, I guess, all that I can ask for at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, you and I have, um, we have New Haven in common. And uh, I grew up in Hamden. Oh, no way. Yeah. And uh, I owned a bookstore in New Haven for a little while in the early mid-90s. And then uh, I left uh, New Haven for New York and really haven't been back. Um, I mean, I've been back. I have family there, but um, haven't lived there. And uh, I'm curious, when you were first describing Columbus, um, I actually really felt like you could have swapped out New Haven and you would have had a very similar description. I'm, I'm wondering what it was about Connecticut or New Haven in particular that didn't resonate for you. I think, I mean, I think the easiest answer is that I just didn't have the emotional connection to it that I have to Columbus. Because I do think in some ways the cities are similar. You know, New Haven's a bit more insular. They both center on a large university, but I think the way New Haven centers and revolves around Yale is a little bit different due to its size and, yeah. Um, you know, due to the kind of massiveness of Yale itself in rel- you know, in relation to that size. Of course, Ohio State is bigger than Yale, but I think uh, Columbus offers Ohio State more room to sprawl. But I, I did think that it's also regional, perhaps. I think there is a temperament in the Northeast that I appreciate and have a lot of love for, but it is different than the Midwest temperament that I knew. And, and to be clear, you know, there are undoubtedly many Northeast temperaments as there are many Midwestern temperaments. Um, you know, like the temperament that I most love being adjacent to in Ohio is not the same as St. Louis or Detroit even, which is not, you know, Detroit's like three hours from where I'm at. There was something about the the Northeast that just, I think, did not, um, did not grab me and make me feel whole. Um, but I, I do, I also think that some of that is simply attributed to the fact that I, of course, I would not feel whole there. I, I hadn't lived there. You know, it's not a, it's not a community um, I had been a part of, or it's not a place I had been a part of for for my life, like I have been in Ohio. Yeah. What had, what brought you east initially? Um, my partner at the time got a job actually in Hamden teaching at Quinnipiac. Um, <laughs> and so, um, you know, we had kind of searched around uh, for places to live in Hamden, as beautiful as Hamden is, I think we both kind of wanted to be in a place that felt a little more like a city. Yeah, uh, and that was still. I mean, you know, New Haven and Hamden are like a. I think it's like fifteen minute drive, you know, from where we were to Quinnipiac, maybe fifteen twenty minutes. But one thing I did love about the Northeast that I I just I love it here too, but that not in the same way. The fall, you know, like the fall mm-hmm. weather, um, and I think the way the leaves change there. You know, here in Ohio, I, I love the changing of the leaves and all that, but there there was like a uniformity to the way the leaves changed color in the Northeast, particularly in Connecticut and Hamden. Um, there was kind of this uh, collaborative agreement among the trees that they would shift through these phases kind of evenly. And, and because there were so many of them kind of clustered together, right? You would get these really vibrant views of um of that process and I, I do miss that that's a that's a um that's a really beautiful uh perception and articulation of what happens there and uh 
I do have to say, you know, I, I'm now a transplant. I'm on the West Coast. I'm in uh, the Pacific Northwest, just outside of Seattle. And um, if I do long for anything, um, it usually happens just after Labor Day. And I start to get that feel of, um, of the long autumn uh, in the Northeast and the colors and uh, the smell in the air and those first days of the sweater or a sweatshirt. Or yeah. um, it is very... It is very archetypal, um, a New England autumn. Uh, it's really amazing. Um, that's, that's incredible to hear you say that, especially as someone who, who was uh, really just a visitor for a couple of years, that, uh, that, that that's what caught you. Um, but I, I, I'm, a bit of a, um, I'm a bit of a partisan um, when it comes to New Haven. I, I, there's a lot about that town I really like. Um, I think it's a fascinating place. I love its history. I love its 20th century history. You know, it was sort of a, um, and, and not all of it's pretty, just to be clear, but um, yeah. it, it was uh, it was sort of a experimental ground for sort of the, the tragedies of urban renewal and a lot of experimentation around what the downtown could be. You know, it had that, that shopping mall that everything faced inside, nothing faced the street. And it really just completely changed the dynamic of the city or that part of the city wiped out foot traffic, made it much less safe, but all these experiments, you know, around what, what city planning could be and what the city of the future would be like. Most of it turned out to be utter bullshit, but, but a lot of it right. was experimented yeah. in New Haven. Um, and I find that just, just really fascinating. And for a town its size, and I promise I'll get off the topic, it's a pretty good food town for a place its size. Uh, you could, you could do some damage eating there. <laughs> Absolutely. I, you know, like, I think that it gets, um, yeah, my experience, I think it gets pigeonholed as only a pizza town, like only a pizza city. But the seafood also, like I'm someone who loves seafood, and so um, it's also a good seafood town, also a good ice cream town. Yeah, I mean it's a really good, a really good food food. Oh, uh, honey, if it's a good ice cream town, <laughs> yeah. And I feel like no one, I don't know, I, everyone who came to visit me was kind of like, well, I read about the pizza, I want to try the pizza, and it's like, yeah, I mean definitely try the pizza, but it's an incredible ice cream town. Uh, where did you live when you were when you were down there? I lived on Church Street, so it was kind of like right downtown. Um, I lived above um, Cafe Nine. Was that what it was called? It was like a little bar. Oh, sure, yeah. Like a little like a bar punk venue type thing. Um, and that was kind of cool. You know, it was like living out this dream of, um, you know, when I was young, I was kind of always like, oh, it would be great if I lived above a place where music was played, you know, if I lived above a bar or a club where, where bands played and I could just pop down and see them. That's a little bit more romantic than it actually was living above, above that spot. Um, but yeah, we were right above it. Um, sometimes heard the bands playing very loud, uh, which I was fine with, but it was, you know, it was cool. It was, um, there was a mark. I worked from home when I was, I still had like my nine to five job and I worked from home. And I would go to, uh, I believe it was like the Elm City Market, it was called. And I would just, while he was right down the street, I'd walk there like a couple times a week for lunch. And it felt very neighborhood-like. Um, so don't get me wrong. I mean, there are parts of New Haven that I very much enjoyed and came to love. Um, but it also seemed kind of untenable for me to be there forever. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I get that. And the other, the other remark you made that... Um, I, that resonates a lot to me is, is the insular nature of the city. I, I, I found it very interesting um, how many people um, that are, that, that have sort of stayed there from my life growing up are like hyper, hyper 
partisan New Haven people. Like there's a lot of, it's, it's just, it's a fascinating city, the reactions and the loyalties it brings out in people. Um, I, I find it, like I said, for such a small place, um, it's got, it's got such a, it's got so many sort of contradictions in it. And um, I don't know. I don't know. I, <laughs> I guess part of it is, is also, you know, it being sort of home as well, but um, I find it's just such a fascinating little city um, tucked in um, and otherwise what I find not very interesting region. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love, I mean, I, I really did love Providence so much. Um, and, and Portland, Maine's really beautiful. Um, and yeah, I mean, that, that, but I, I, I'm a Midwesterner and, and it, it was very good to come back home. Yeah. Providence and Portland are both cities that have changed a lot. Um, also along the lines you've talked about, you know, I, I suppose it's, the, it's the common thread in American cities right now, right? It's the, the last 20 or 30 years has just seen such a gentrification, such a, a, a change in industries. Um, but, but Providence is another city that that's really um, sort of renewed and blossomed in a much different way than it was when I was growing up. Um, oh yeah. Absolutely. You know, you'd have no reason to go there other than to pass through on your way to Northern New England, um, quite honestly, but um, it's, it's actually a beautiful little city now. Um, I guess, I guess the combination of the college towns and uh, the shift maybe away from manufacturing or relying on the waterfronts um, for industry uh, has made so much of the change, but so what's, um, I want to talk to, uh, you know, the reason I reached out to you was because of uh, the podcast, because of Lost Notes. And then that uh, took me into a rabbit hole um, of everything that is your career. And, um, but I found your, your, your take on the podcast so exciting and fun. And uh, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the process behind um these episodes specifically how were the stories chosen and how familiar were you with the material and the topics at the outset versus how much of it did you have to um go and discover to create these episodes oh i mean i was pretty familiar with all of them and so the funny thing about lost notes is um you know the producers kind of come to you or at least they came to me and are like we want you to host the new season um and it can be about whatever you want. Like, you know, like whatever you think you could do like six to eight episodes on. And for me, that was too overwhelming. I mean, it's just like, you know, like um, anytime you have endless options, you really don't have any options. Yeah, exactly. um, yeah. I think. Um, and, and I knew I wanted it to, I wanted it to be something connected. Um, but there was just too much. Everything felt so large. And then I, I figured, okay, if I think about anniversaries and say, okay, we're stumbling upon the anniversary of this turn of the decade and the shift in sound, 1980, and who, like, how can I start this? You know, so I went to, I was like, I, wanted, I think I want to do a thing on 1980, seven or so stories on 1980. And at first we were going to do a thing that revolved entirely around death. We're thinking about like, um, you know, ACDC switching lead singers after it you know, after death and, and uh, Ian Curtis, which made the, made the reel in um, John Lennon and Darby Crash, which made it. But I was like, hey, you know, that's a little too dark for, for a whole thing. Because I think we could have kept going on that. We had, you know, I had some stuff lined up. I was like, I can't do 
seven episodes on just death and we, like it wasn't i mean to be fair it wasn't just like people died it was also about legacy and reformation and you know much like much like the ian curtis new order episode turned out that was the dream for all of them in some ways yeah. um but even that felt a little too dark you know um and then we kind of we stuck on this this idea of reforming oneself uh and then i started thinking about grace jones and the Compass Point All-Stars and um, Warm Leather Rent, the first album in that trilogy for Grace Jones that really reshaped her career. And then I started thinking about Stevie Wonder um, and Secret Life of Plants and, and then Hotter Than July. Um, the only story, and to be fair, you know, um, the thing about Lost Notes, this episode was that we had to switch ID, we had to switch the whole format of it the goal was to talk to people and do like an in-depth interview thing in almost every episode. So it wouldn't just be my voice, you know, and we did that on some, we did that with Sugar Hill Gang, we did that with Mini Ripperton. Um, but COVID hit and, and when, you know, we were working on this and COVID hit um, and at that point it was March, April. So all the studios were closed out and we couldn't, you know, it was like, there's no feasible way to record um, interviews with other people seamlessly. We had to like pass around equipment and this is just like you know kcrw is you know just like public radio um and so it turned into this thing where i, I had to then do in-depth writing you know i was the voice so i had to, to tell these stories on my own and do the writing on my own and do some deep dives on my own the only the only one of the episodes that i was a little unfamiliar with was um and, and even unfamiliar is a, a generous word because i knew about mary and michaela in Hugh Masekela's concert in Lesotho. Um, but I didn't know the entire history behind how it came to be that year. And so that one was suggested to me by Mike Weisskopf, who's a producer. And researching that was a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, um, most of these I was kind of like, okay, how can I make this story compelling or interesting? How can I find, how can I dig deep enough to find the one tidbit that makes this more exciting than just, you know, like, Hotter than July, release in a year where there was a, a deadly heat wave, right? That's the thing. Um, and also the thing was understanding that while this is Lost Notes 1980 and we're focusing on the end result of a project or a product or a life that began or ended in 1980, um, the story has to be told with a framework that includes what came before it. You know, sometimes the most interesting thing is not what happened in 1980. For example, the Hugh Masekela and Marion Makeba story cannot be told without telling the decades of apartheid, without telling about the Sharpeville massacre, without telling about Soweto's uprising. All of these things have to braid in together to make the story of what happened in 1980 actually work. But um, in some ways, with a lot of these stories, what happened in 1980 is just the shell of the vehicle and everything that happened before is the engine and the interior. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. I think um, one of the things that struck me listening to the episodes was, uh, well, several things, but one thing that immediately struck me was that um, you did not fall into the cliche of um, sort of 1980 as the subject matter, if you will, or like 1980 as a transitional year, or you didn't, I didn't come away feeling as though you tried to build a thesis around 1980 as a pivotal moment per se. It was more of a connective strand between 
these stories. Um, and I really appreciated that. I thought that that would be, uh, you know, that would have been an easier trope, I think, to hang um, yeah. some of these stories around. And, I, and quite frankly, I think your decision to not, to not tie them together through the, the threat of sort of death and redemption or death and rebirth um, was also probably a very uh, wise and, 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 and opened you up to tell more stories as well. Yeah. Um, but I think some of the, some of the sort of higher praise I would love to give you is um, something you actually said, which was for each episode, I, I was familiar with most of these stories as well, or I thought I was, but I learned something new about those stories each time. Um, but I was also uh, after each episode left wanting uh, a little more, you know, uh, and not because yeah. anything was left out, but I felt like I could listen to more about this topic. And so um I consider that I consider that the best praise I could give you. Um, it's that it was so engaging and um, and so educational and so um, so fun along the way. But what what's really striking to me is that you say that you didn't necessarily sit down at the outset of this with a plan to sort of um, to deliver them narratively the way you did. Is that correct? It was it was supposed to be a bit more of a of a interview based or pastiche type um, presentation. Yeah. Yeah, there's going to be a shared lift. I mean, there was going to definitely be some narrative, but there was going to be, um, you know, kind of but what happened with the Sugar Hill Gang episode was maybe going to be the, the plan where the narrative is only a portion of it. And then someone like Dart Adams, who's, a, you know, an expert in the encyclopedia on um, rap music and hip hop culture, would be in conversation with me. Um, and so there was going to always be some narrative lift on my end, but it wasn't going to be the entirety of these episodes. It was kind of going to be um, a shared process. But I, I also think, you know, I wouldn't trade, um, I wouldn't trade how this shook out for anything. I mean, obviously the circumstances were less than ideal. Um, the circumstances under which this was created were less than ideal, but um, the process of writing these allowed for me to kind of go down the rabbit holes that, really foster my curiosities just as a person who loves music and a person who uses music to step into the world and make sense of that, which I couldn't make sense of otherwise. Um, and so I'm, I'm thankful for how it turned out in a way, um, you know, and I just found so much good stuff when, when writing the mini Ripperton episode, I just found so much good video footage that like deeply heartbreaking video footage, um, but also incredible video footage when, when doing the Grace Jones episode, there was this natural thing that, um, you know, choosing to start at disco was simply because when I was researching Disco Demolition Night, it's like, oh shit, this happened the same day. This happened in Chicago, the same day Minnie Ripperton passed away, who was from Chicago. There's a there's something being built here. There's like an unintentional narrative arc being built here, even when I'm not trying to. Um, and so that, I wouldn't trade those those revelatory moments for anything. Yeah, yeah. The, I enjoyed the Grace Jones episode particularly because I think of her um, as such um, a visual and video driven artist, and to actually have to sit there with nothing more than your narrative imagery, and to think about Grace Jones, and to I, I just found it very evocative. Um, I enjoyed that episode um, so much, um, but I'm curious. What what order did you record them in? Do you remember what order you recorded them in? 
Uh, I, I know for sure the mini Ripperton was first. That one was first, and I remember it because I recorded it in a studio. And so that was in like February before like doing anything in studios became untenable. So I remember entirely the mini Ripperton one being first, and then after that, kind of us being like, okay, we got to switch how we do things. Um, and then the, we, I, I don't think we recorded one again for a long, long time. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I feel like we didn't record again until maybe June. Wow. Um, and some of that was because I had to write and rewrite and, and edit. Um, but then the recording process really picked up. Like there, there were points where we were recording like two a day. Um, and we would record one draft and then kind of go back in and record another. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure the Stevie Wonder one was second. Um all I remember for sure is that we ended on um, the Darby Crash and John Lennon one. Part of this was because I just wanted to space out the ones that were really emotionally heavy um, for my own sake, you know, like not even for the sake of sequencing, but just because like reading the Ian Curtis one and then reading the John Lennon Darby Crash one back to back is just really emotionally draining. Um, and and so, you know, I, I do remember that John Lennon Darby Crash being last because I, I it was among the hardest to read, I think, and, and I wanted to give myself some room. Yeah. It's really interesting you say that because I feel the the that ep the John Lennon uh Darby Crash episode reminded me of something I forget, which is almost every time I hear the retelling of um that day. Uh, of John Lennon, you know, John Lennon's final day. Yeah. Um, I feel like I've heard the story a bazillion times, you know, about the autograph as he was leaving for the studio and just, just so many, there's so many little, you know, sort of tent poles of that story. Um, and it's tough every time. And, uh, you know, I was a child. I was, I think, 10 when it happened. I remember it very vividly. Um, it's wrapped up in a few other sort of newsworthy uh memories of that time but um you know i didn't have an emotional connection with john lennon at 10 years old uh but that story is just so poignant every time i hear it and uh, that episode brought that back for me um but the, the first one i listened to was the stevie wonder episode and um it, quite frankly, I couldn't have picked a better one as the as the way in because i was hooked <laughs> it was <laughs> such a such a great episode um such a great story and um it really set for me the um your sort of model of that context that you provided you know going back a few years to sort of set the table for for the story um it was a great narrative device um and i think really really effective um when you were growing up uh what was your entry point into music did you have siblings did you have you know like what what role did music play and how did you come across music yeah, I'm the youngest of four, so I had older siblings, and I had parents who loved music. And I always tell people that if you're lucky um, as a music lover, that could be, you know, you'll have not only parents who love music, but I think the older siblings is really key. Because older siblings, you know, they will introduce you to things that maybe your parents don't have an interest or investment in. And I also came up in the 90s primarily, um, where I fell into my music fandom on my own in the late 90s, but it was shaped in kind of the early 90s when I think a lot of 
teenagers, which my older two of my older siblings were at the time, teenagers and folks in their early 20s, there was kind of that like next wave, I think maybe the, I'll call it the third wave of college radio boom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having older siblings who were also in college was huge because they were hearing things um, that were kind of aligned with their comfort zones that maybe a little outside that, that forced them into new discoveries and then bringing that stuff back home. Um, and so, you know, like my older brother would listen to metal and my, my sister was listening to grunge and, you know, of course at the center, you know, our, our, my, my first introduction to music and the comfort zones that I found in music were, were, were in hip hop. It's just what was around the older siblings at first, but they were also just listening to so much other stuff. Um, Meanwhile, my parents listened to soul and R&B and, and jazz and funk, you know, so I, I really came up in a household where um, as I was growing up and growing into my music taste, I had so many avenues I could go down on my own that were already informed by people who had rich and varied music tastes. Um, and so that, you know, I, I think that's the greatest gift that I had coming up as a person who loved music was just being in the orbit of older people who loved music and had who had more access to it, you know, because I couldn't often buy my own music when I was young. When you're young, you're, you're at the mercy of whomever's driving you around or, you know, you you know, I couldn't like touch the stereo on my dad's car or my brother's car. And, um, but I, they played so much stuff all the time. It really, um, shaped what I was listening to on my own. And um, radio was such a big thing for me back then. You know, I, I don't listen to the radio much now or at all now, but actual, you know, Columbus had a few really great, varied radio stations. And I would just re- record things off the radio all the time. You'd have tapes and tapes and tapes and stuff and I record off the radio. Radio was very special. Radio yeah. was very special, and, and, and especially local and regional radio, right? Whether it was the personalities that you came to feel like you knew, or the, um, you could even sort of get a feel for the cadence of a particular radio station or a particular personality in terms of uh, uh, not necessarily being able to pick the song they'd play and when, but you'd, you'd get a feel as to when you might want to hit record on, on the yeah. cassette. Yeah, and so. you, knew what, you would know what people would play. Like if you knew the radio personality well enough, you knew exactly what they were going to, you know, you knew like what requests they were going to ignore and what requests they were going to lean into. And you knew what kind of sets they were going to play. You know, you, I, I would, I would, there were radio personalities and DJs who I knew I had to have my tape recorder at the ready because they would play the stuff I'd want to, to have recorded. You know, historically they would play that stuff. And there was something really cool about that. It felt like an exchange. It felt like you're doing, um, you know, it felt like someone doing a service and you kind of keeping up with that service in your own little corner of the world. Yeah. Do you feel like there's an analog to that today in media at all, or specifically in music at all? Is it, or is that, is that a lost form or is there something that's replaced it? I can't say, I mean, I can't say, I don't want to say it's a lost form because I genuinely don't listen to the radio and I, I don't. Um, but I imagine that radio still has an impact on, on lives somewhere. Um, but there's, you know, I think to know a DJ is a form that will never be lost, ideally. Um, or to have a relationship, you know, to even like map out what a DJ is doing as a night evolves um, is, is never going to be a lost form for as long as there are. And I know that there are 
Well, hopefully there are not many of these happening right now. But as long as there are parties where DJs come and spin records, um, that at the actual foundation of that relationship, I think, will never go away because it's that same thing. It's the same, you know, the same thing that, as I talked about in Sugar Hill, the gang episode, birthed hip hop music in some ways, the DJs and, and what it was to have a relationship with a DJ to know the movements a DJ is going to, going to make as the night goes on. Um, to me, that's adjacent to me sitting in front of my, my, you know, kind of, shitty boombox when I was a kid waiting to record something. Yeah. Yeah. And whether it's in your listening habits or your own sort of quiet moment, or maybe even how you thought about uh, the stories for the podcast, what role, if any, does nostalgia play in your sort of worldview or your conceptualization of all this? Oh, I think I'm someone who in my work and in, I mean, definitely with the podcast, you know, I mean, it bears mentioning that like 1980, I wasn't, I wasn't alive. Um, but I, I do lean on nostalgia as something to be engaged with thoughtfully and responsibly and not just kind of, um, you know, not just kind of whimsically pushed onto the world as something that's unassailable. Um, and I think that's maybe the hard part because so many of my memories feel singular and important and worth, you know, celebrating in the highest way possible. But I think as I get closer to them, um, and as I offer them a critical treatment, it's not that they don't hold up, but they, they, under that scrutiny, um, I'm more prone to pick them apart, but I think through that picking them apart, it honors it honors the nostalgia. It is not me just kind of floating along upon a river of memories that are um, infallible. And when I do it that way, it answers better questions about who I am and how I became who I am and how all the people I love became who they are. Um, and so nostalgia is important. Don't get me wrong, um, but I, I think I like to treat nostalgia. Um, with a little bit of uh, responsibility when I can. I think that's a great word. And one that I've not, I think that really captures um, something important, which is it, it is a, a, it's a slippery slope or it's a, um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a compound or a chemical that if, uh, if not treated with care um, can be pretty toxic, but also has a very beautiful side um, if managed correctly. Um, I really appreciate that that perspective. Um, were there were there stories that you didn't get to tell, or were there a few that were um, you know sort of on the bubble, and that when it came down to doing the story editing itself, you had to um, you had to leave on the cutting room floor, so to speak? No, I mean we you know we are pretty meticulous about the stories we pick, and then when we pick them, I mean we had we had a pool to choose from, um, but none of them that we left behind. I don't think we regretted, and we did it. We were very much like, you know, we're going to pick these seven or eight or so, and we're going to run with them. Especially um, when we kind of all had to go inside and reformat how we were approaching it. It's like we don't have time now. We don't have time to mess around, you know. And so, like, we got these stories. These are the stories we're running with. These stories, and that's it. And I think that approach was really helpful to me um, because, again, I'm you know I'm someone who is a, a pretty terrible decision maker. Um, and I'm someone who is 
pretty anxious all the time about did I make the right decision uh, or, you know, did I somehow fail in this way to, to, to pick the, the quote unquote right thing? It was kind of cool to just have have this thing where it was like, we because we don't have time to mess around, we made these decisions and these are the choices we're sticking with. And this is the work that has to be pursued in the name of these decisions. And that was that was that. And it was kind of like, all right, well, now we're getting to work. Um, and, and so that, yeah, there was nothing left on the cutting room floor because I think when we were kind of making these, making these choices, uh, these stories felt like the best mix thematically and emotionally and also, um, a kind that provided an, un- again, provided that unintentional arc. One thing that uh, stood out was that when you describe the uh, show or when you when you do the the credits recap at the end, you refer to yourself as the performer, and I've seen that in some of the write ups as well and some of the reviews. It's very it's a very intentional choice of word, right? It's not host, it's not narrator, um, it's performer, and I wonder what that word in particular means to you and how and if it dovetails at all. Um, with your life as a poet and um, is poet is being a poet at all um, performance, you know, is there a performance art aspect to that? You know, is it, is it, is it simply writing or is it also performance? No, I think it's also performance. And I think the reason I, so I didn't pick that word to be fair. It was just kind of in the script, but I think it makes sense because um, to read the work, I'm very big on delivery of information. Right. And so when I finished writing all the pieces for Lost Notes, it was very clear. It was like, okay, I have this information that I now have to share with the public in a way that is engaging and in a way that at least keeps them around, you know, Um, because I'm not telling, even if people think these are undertold stories, I don't necessarily do in some cases, but I'm definitely not telling untold stories. I am not unearthing something new and never before seen or heard before what i'm doing is placing mapping my own perspective over an existing narrative and that in and of itself is a performance i believe um right it's it's to deem myself um a vehicle through which this pre-existing narrative is understood um Hmm. and that alone required a bit of performance and to be fair, a bit of convincing, convincing people that my perspective and to be fair, the perspective of the producers, Nick White and Mike Weisskopf um, and Victoria Alejandra, um, who, who were going to be mapping out the soundscapes of this to build an entire world, to build an ecosystem through which this narrative is um, understood in perhaps a slightly different way than it has been. That for me feels like a shared performance on all of our parts. It feels like we kind of collaborated in a performance that um, I think worked all right. But some of that is because truthfully, um, I know and understand that I wasn't doing anything new. I wasn't offering anything brand new to anyone. Um, Not that I was required to, but... um, you know, with that in mind, the idea was, how do I make this interesting? Yeah. 
Yeah. And do you like the audio form? Like after going through the experience, was it, uh, are you done with it now? Or do you see it as a, um, do you see it as something that there's more to play with more to discover? Um, how do you, how do you think about that project now that you're done with it? Oh, I hope there's more to discover. I mean, I, you know, um, I don't particularly like hearing the sound of my own voice. And so <laughs> I had to be fair to be like entirely clear. I haven't really listened to it to Lost Notes yet. Um, but um, I, I think that there's a, there was something really cool about working in the format and finding my way through, um, you know, talking about, it, it felt in some ways like I was gathering in front of an audience of friends to show them something I was excited about. And just kind of having free reign to do that. And that felt um, really exciting. Especially now, you know, especially in a moment where I'm not seeing my friends, or I'm not seeing the people I care about, and um, often having conversations through screens. It felt good to imagine myself in a world where I had something to show the people I loved and I could not wait to tell them. Um, and, and so, you know, there was something really valuable there. Yeah, I, it's something I've learned from doing these interviews um, is it, it finally made real for me what I've heard a lot of, uh, quite honestly, radio professionals talk about, which is the intimacy um, of, of the radio format. Um, and I was finally able to experience that, that feeling of, um, you know, most of the time it's me by myself with a microphone and at most I'm seeing somebody on the screen. I've only recorded a couple of these in person um, because we, we started airing them uh, in January. So we didn't have very long um, until the, till the quarantine hit or until the pandemic hit. So um, it is a very intimate uh, format and to talk to somebody without other people watching or other people around um, I actually, it's, it's one of the parts of it I enjoy the most. I think, you know, I, I got into this because I care about other people's stories and I love to, I, I you know, I, I don't, I, I think you can be anybody and have an interesting story. And I love to, to tease those out from people. Um, but it's a real, it's a, it's a very, I almost call it a selfish feeling that I, I get so much from doing this um, and from sort of, you know, getting taken out of myself and, hearing another person tell their tales and, and bring their perspective. Um, but it all comes down to that sort of immediacy of the spoken word and the, uh, the audio format. I, I find it just sort of intellectually, it's fascinating, but um, emotionally it's been very, it's been very, uh, it's been a very special experience. Um, what do you have cooking? Um, are you, I, I, I didn't want to make any assumptions, but I think from what I read, are you, are you working on another book now or you're contracted for another book or? Yeah, well, it's coming out. It's done, thankfully. Um, so it's, it comes out March 30th. It's called A Little Devil in America. Uh, it's a book of nonfiction, long-form work about um, considering various, in celebration of, and in, 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 in consideration of various modes of Black performance throughout U.S. history. So that's the next book. Um, and, you know, I'm entering kind of a mode happily, um, you know, towards the end of every year, I try to take like three weeks off. And by off, I mean, you know, time to kind of pursue curiosities outside of deadlines and things I'm normally doing and to write on my own time and 
um, like normally I would kind of bounce through the world a bit, but cannot do that. So, um, you know, probably do some like home improvement projects. I've been doing puzzles. So I'm looking forward to that, um, which will probably take hold here in about two and a half weeks. You know, it's a really exciting week for me this week because every year, the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, I watched the last waltz. Um, oh, nice. And um, that's been a tradition I've had since, I mean, for like well over a decade now. Um, and it's the only time I ever, you know, I, I don't, I only watch it once a year and I watch it on that side. I, I get to a point where I really miss it and I get excited about seeing it. So I'm excited about that's what's cooking this week is that I, um, you know, see the last waltz and uh, 605 is a project that, um, yeah. like a playlist project and a music archival project that I have that just will forever take up a lot of my time. Um, but like happily take up a lot of my time. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of ongoing. Tell me about that. Tell me about the playlist project. Um, it's yeah. So six eight oh five is something. So the beginning of this year, I was teaching in Iowa uh, at the University of Iowa. I was living in Iowa City um, until, of course, I wasn't. But <laughs> for for January and February and a little bit of March, I was there, um, and I was alone largely. My my responsibilities are pretty low and so I had a lot of time alone and I was starting to consider kind of what we were talking about a bit ago the roots of my music interests who was listening to what and who inspired me to listen to what and where did those people get inspired by and I mapped out this run of years from 1968 to 2005 where I think where my music taste was most formed by other people and then I considered everything after 05 of course it's still evolving and forming largely on my own um and initially I was like, I'm just going to make a playlist for every single year. Um, and then I made a couple and people were interested in it. Um, and then the pandemic hit and I thought, well, I'll make a website to house these playlists. And in the making of the website, I started asking myself questions like, who would, who's going to come here just for a playlist? You know, like who's going to keep returning to this website just for getting a playlist when they could do that on Spotify. And so then I added, you know, on every, I'd made a page for every single year added magazine covers to kind of have like a touchable archival effect. I added performances, um, like live performances from each of those years. Um, and then I again thought, this can't just be about me. You know, I would love to make this about more than just myself. I would love for this to be somewhere that people can come to actually read writing about music. Cause that's what I, that's what gets me excited still is reading, writing about music. Yeah. Um, and so then I decided that I would do this thing where I, I wanted to reach out to a broad range of people, people who don't normally get asked to write about songs, musicians who don't normally get asked what music they love. Um, and I was like, you know, I, I email people and I'm kind of like, you pick one album between 1992 and 1997. That's, you know, give me like 1,200, 1,200 words on it and I'll pay you a little bit of money. And um, it's, it's, um, it's been fun to see it kind of slowly come to life. This week I'm doing a thing where I'm running, I asked like seven different writers to write small reflections on their favorite performance in the last waltz and I'm going to run that. Um, and I'm really excited to run that. And um yeah, it's. I just hope that it kind of continually evolves. 
Wow, that's a really beautiful project. Um, that's I, I love that. Um, I'll last Walt's question before I let you go. Um, so you've watched it, uh, at least 10 times. It sounds like from your uh, description. Um, actually, I guess two questions. Do you have a peak moment and are there still things you find in it that surprise you? Yeah. I mean, I think I have a couple peak moments. Everyone's always says Ann Morrison. So I'm going to circumvent that, you know, yes, of course. Um, but, you know, there's a part in Helpless where, um, you know, they, they hid Joni Mitchell backstage because it was so, she was coming out after. The film, of course, is not, I'm assuming you've seen it. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> the film's like not chronological, but in the concert, Joni Mitchell was coming out after Neil Young, but they couldn't, they couldn't not show her to the audience because her coming out was going to be a surprise. So there's that part where they hide her backstage during Helpless. Mm-hmm. And she comes in in the first verse and starts singing background vocals. And Brat and um, Robbie and Rick kind of do this thing where they pretend to look to the heavens like they don't know where the voice is coming from. <laughs> and um, that's such a cool part for me. That's just such a cool, beautiful part. Um, and I think that the helpless performance, it bums, and I get that people like the salacious stuff, but it bums me out that that performance is so the narrative of that performance is so rooted in like Neil Young being high or whatever. Um, because it's such a beautiful, beautiful performance of that song. I think one of the maybe two or three best performances that, that song ever captured on film. Um, and it's just so tender and um, the love and affection they have for each other is so powerful. Gosh, now I'm thinking about other moments. There's this part. I just, I love so many parts of it. There's the who do you love part where, um, you can tell there's a moment where you can tell that Ronnie Hawkins knows that this band has like outgrown him yeah. where he can't, like he actually cannot control them on stage anymore. You know, not even in a malicious way, but you can tell that cause he's not trying to like, but you can tell that he's like, Oh shit. These are, these are no longer my guys. These are like, some, they're on some other shit now. He can't um, stay on the bucking Bronco. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think even something about that is really tender and sweet. Um, and lastly, there's this part um, at the end of the wait where the camera picks up Mavis Staples whispering the words beautiful to Robbie. Uh-huh. And that's also really, really sweet. Nothing, I mean, I will, I will say, I'm not really surprised by much anymore except for, you know, as time goes on and, and folks pass on or whatever, like I, I think watching Such a Night will be tough this year. Dr. John's gone. Um, and so that, that kind of stuff comes back. I'm, I'm reminded at how much older folks are. Um, as I, you know, I, I recently did a profile of the musicians, Gillian Welch and David Rawlings. And to do a follow-up, you know, you have to do those like follow-up talks. And I talked, I was like honored and thrilled to talk to Emmylou Harris. Um, and talking to her, I realized, gosh, Emmylou Harris has been around so incredibly long. It has touched music in so many different ways. Yeah. Um, and, and to see her in the last waltz this year will probably be a bit um, beautiful, but a little melancholy. Yeah. That was a great piece, by the way. That I, I meant to bring that up. So thank you for touching on that. That was a, that was a really great, um, a great article and, and only made me more excited for the, uh, the potential to talk with, talk to you about music and other things. Um, I really enjoyed that piece. And, um, your point about Emmy Lou is really well taken. There, there's, there's certain artists who sometimes I don't think about for a little while. And then when I'm reminded of them or I revisit them, I think 
there's going to be a time when there's a world without this artist in it. And that's really, I, I, I don't, I, it's an awful thought to have hit me. Um, but it does. And I think about that, um, on occasion. And Emmy Lou is one of those artists where I've just, she's just always been there and she shows up in all these places, whether it's the last waltz or on a Neil Young record or, um, wherever in, in your article, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, and she's always there and, uh, I just want her to always be there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I wanted to ask you one other quick thing. Did you, do you, uh, did you happen to see, um, I woke up to this, I think it was this morning or maybe yesterday morning. Um, the new episode of Questlove's podcast is I think a two or three hour interview with Q-Tip. I saw that. I haven't listened yet. I was planning on uh, putting it. I normally don't listen to pod. You know, I run. I go on runs and whatnot. And I, I normally don't listen to podcasts on my runs. But I think that this is one I'm going to have to put on um, while running. It feels it feels like a a, a robust one that I'm going to really enjoy. It feels like there's a lot of potential for it to be a good conversation. Um, yeah. His discussions with uh, Bootsy Collins and George Clinton were were so good, um, so much better than I expected either of those meant to be in terms of the openness and the vulnerability they showed and the deference to each other. Um, they were really great conversations. Incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of fun. Well, honey, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for your creative output and for um, getting me uh, in part through the pandemic. Uh, I've really enjoyed uh, listening to your podcast, digging into your other work, um, exploring your work and now getting to speak with you. Um, so thank you for all of that. No, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. This is really wonderful. All right. Well, have a great Thanksgiving. Enjoy the last waltz. And uh, I'll look forward to talking to you soon. All right. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Hanif Abdurraqib. And thank you, Taylor Lord, for arranging this interview. Thanks to Aunt Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you want to learn more about Light, visit us at light.com. That's L-Y-T-E dot com. As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Spread the word. We're available from Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and most anywhere else podcasts can be had. And please keep your feedback coming. Email me at lp at light.com. Thanks so much. Be safe. Happy holidays and stay in touch.